welcome to Sellersburg United Methodist Church podcast, where we bring our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world to you, wherever you are. Welcome to our third Sunday in the season of Lent. Can you believe we're almost halfway through this season? And so maybe you've, you've kind of lost a grip on your ritual, your practice, your fast, because we're three weeks in, it's lost its luster. And I invite you to re-energize yourself in your effort. Or maybe you've, you've not had any problem. You've stuck with the practice and you're finding it's become a part of your rhythm. What a blessing it can be. And we're at that time where it could be one or the other. And so I just want to encourage you to keep going and trust, trust the process that you have entered into with God. Our series is called Rend Your Hearts, Claiming the Promise. It's two parts. Rending your heart is like a confession. It's a humility. It's recognizing where we've fallen short. Claiming the promise is the reception, again, of assurance and hope. They come together One leads to the other. They go hand in hand. And so while it's hard to think about, we do so because we have confidence in our God. We want to be re-centered in this time of Lent because sometimes we get off the path. Or maybe it's just me. You find yourself sometimes looking around and saying, wow, I did not think I would be doing the things I'm doing. Did not think I would be where it is I realize I am. Where did it all go wrong? Maybe it's, it's like traveling to a place. Now, see, not too long ago, we didn't have Siri. We used a thing called an atlas. And some of you are maybe young enough, you're saying, what is an atlas? It's like a map. And it would tell you uh, increments. So it would give you distances on a, on a road, so many miles, represented from maybe this intersection to that intersection. And I remember using an atlas and having to every now and again pull it out and check that I didn't miss my turn, because if I had gone too far and didn't realize it, then that means the further I go, the farther I'm getting from where I wanted to be. So you've got to pull out the map, you've got to assess where you are and make sure you are where you think you are, so that you could figure out if you're still headed where it is you want to go. And if you've gotten off track, you've got to reroute your trip accordingly. So Lent is us analyzing, are we where we think we are? Are we still headed? where it is we want to go. Uh, There are some examples of this in a more practical sense. Miles Davis, great jazz musician. It was known that after shows, Miles Davis wouldn't go out on the night in the town with his band or his friends. He went back to his hotel room and practiced. He was always playing all the time. And the greatest musicians are like that. They're always playing their instrument. That's why they're so good because they've dedicated all their time, they've connected with this purpose and they orient their life and every decision they make directs them toward their goal. Or athletes, they do the same thing. They've committed themselves to being the best they can be and so sometimes they say no to doing other things, things that their friends are doing. When their friends are having fun and relaxing, oftentimes an athlete is sweating and bleeding and practicing and perfecting their craft. They're working and they love every minute of it even when it's hard. The same thing with some of my friends and cousins or roommates from college. They wanted to be doctors. And so while we went to sporting events and while we you know, went outside and played games or whatever, they were in the room and they were studying. They were doing their biology and chemistry. They were doing their math. 
I felt like they were never having any fun, but to them, that's what life was oriented to. They knew where they were going and they knew what they had to do to get there and they knew they could not get off track. And so when you're centered on your calling, on your purpose, the rest of your life orients itself accordingly. This is a good thing, friends. It's a good thing. As long as where you are oriented to is a good thing. And that's where we have to evaluate. So if you're unsure where you're all about in life, what life is about for you, then it's time to evaluate where your treasure is, okay? Your treasure, the things we have, money, time, and energy are just three of our treasure. So where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your money? Where are you investing your energy, your emotion? Sadly, sometimes we invested in politics, right? We get all wrapped up in things that we don't want to be wrapped up in, but suddenly we are. Or maybe you realize that your calendar's gotten away from you, and you look and you're like, I don't have any time to do the things that I really want to do. Or maybe your money, you realize you have no idea how much money you were spending on whatever it is you're spending it on until you stop and you look at it and you assess where is your treasure. And as Jesus says in Matthew 5 or Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. It's time for us to reassess. And if you're not going to do it now in Lent, I don't know when you're going to do it. Lent is perfect for this. If you feel like I've gotten off track, welcome to Lent. That's what it's for. We're all in this together. You're not alone. Now, we've talked about the need for all of us to be one, be one people. All of us come together as the church to rend our hearts as one. The prophet Joel walked us through that in week one. And then last week, we heard about the promise made to Abraham and Sarah and how they experienced 24 years of not seeing the promise fulfilled. And they even committed themselves further in this incredible walk of faith with God. So today we come to another step in this promise. The receiving of all these words as Exodus 20 begins. All these words. But first, let's understand a bit of the context of how we got to the place where all these words were given. Because we've probably heard of the Ten Commandments, right? You've probably heard people argue about it at courthouses, about it should be hanging up or it shouldn't be hanging up. And you've probably heard a lot of people get angry and, and fuss and, and have lots of debate on the Ten Commandments themselves. And it can start to wonder, what are the Ten Commandments even about? Especially as we see people holding a sign, yelling about the Ten Commandments, and at the same time, they're breaking several of the commandments in the moment. It's funny. We do that. We can laugh. And if you participated in it, it's okay to laugh at yourself, too. So let's understand what brought them to the point where these words came to be and had meaning way back in Exodus 20. So to try to make this story quick, in Genesis, in Genesis, Abraham and Sarah were made the promise. We follow down a few lines and eventually there's a man named Joseph. Joseph is the great, great grandson, something like that, of Abraham and Sarah, and Joseph is in Israel, and some things happen with his brothers. You'll have to read the story. It's amazing, but he ends up in Egypt. He ends up serving Pharaoh in Egypt, and he ends up having dreams and interpreting dreams, and they figure out a famine's coming. So Egypt does what it needs to do by the, by the leading of Joseph, and they find themselves in great excess of food. So when the famine comes, they're ready. Not only that, but the rest of Israel ends up coming down because they need food. They come to Egypt, and what do you know? Egypt has it, and they start living together. So Egypt and Israel are in this relationship. They're in this partnership together. They're taking care of one another. 
until Israel starts to grow in number and becomes so big that it becomes a threat to Egypt. This is many generations later, and suddenly the new Pharaoh, who has no memory of Joseph and all the great things that they accomplished together with Israel, now sees, sees Israel as a threat. Because, you know, when somebody who looks different than you uh, isn't of your people, suddenly threatens your security because maybe there's just a bunch of them. And Pharaoh thinks, gosh, if they ever revolted, they might destroy us because look at them, there's so many. They're hard workers, they're dedicated. So we need to, we need to do something about this. So, so this Pharaoh distorts the relationship. And instead of them being partners, places Egypt above them, subordinates them, treats them as less than human, makes them into slaves. And Egypt, who has continued in the life of accruing excess goods, makes Israel be slaves and build storehouses for their stuff, treats them as less than human in some unspeakable ways. Generations go by and Israel is only known itself as slaves to Pharaoh. Serving, worshiping Pharaoh is the word used in our scripture. In Hebrew, it's the word evid, which means worship or serve. It's where we get words like slave. It's where we get words like taskmaster, or hard labor or worship. It all comes from the same word. So what we find is Pharaoh has distorted this idea and is exploiting an entire group of people to which they are stuck serving Pharaoh like a god. And so then Moses comes, and through God's leading, Moses leads them out. They get out of Egypt after generations and generations of being slaves and exploited and having their worth determined by how many bricks they make and how big they make storehouses, they are let out. And so in our reading of chapter 19, three months after being let out, they're standing at the mountain and they have this interaction with God. Three months. It kind of makes you wonder, did they, were they really understanding anything about who they were being called to be? Kingdom of priests, precious possession, They've been a possession before, but it wasn't precious. They've not, never been regarded as something like a priest. They've been slaves. They've been less than. What a monumental shift in perspective they were being offered three months later at that mountain. And we have to feel for them. Because if you're treated for generations like you're less than, like your humanity means nothing, you're not offered any dignity, you know what that does to your psyche as a people? You know what it does when an entire group of people are forced to be slaves and it's upon their backs that another nation builds their wealth and excess and then suddenly they're free? Can they actually function and understand who they even are anymore? Israel has lost its sense of self. And yet... God gives them a sense of self. Who are they? God's precious possession. What were they worth? They are holy. They're a holy nation. They're a kingdom of priests. Now, the people say yes to this, and it's basically a giant marriage ceremony, the way it's drawn up in Exodus. They say, I do to God, but they don't really understand what it is to be all it is they are agreeing to be. Not much different than when two people get married. They give vows. They say, I do but do they understand what it is to be together in health and sickness for richer and poorer? Or do they just commit to learn and grow together to understand that when they need to be whatever it is they need to be? 
And that's what Israel is agreeing to be for God. God's name means I will be what I will be. And Israel is agreeing we will be what you need us to be and we'll figure it out. We trust you to lead us there. And it's going to take a while. It's going to take a lot of other books in our Bible before they're ready to actually be who it is they're called to be. And it's going to take Jesus to get them there. So we come back to Exodus 19, three months after liberation, they're standing there. They have no walls to protect them. They have no land to call their own. They have no army to fight for them. They don't know who they are. How do they understand who they are as anything other than slaves who depends upon a twisted Pharaoh with a twisted idea of service and worship? And then God has Moses prepare the people. So they're following Moses. Moses says, look, you're going to abstain from a lot of different activities. You're going to wash your clothes. You're going to wash your bodies. You're going to gather. We're going to be one people. We're going to stand at the mountain. We're going to receive a covenant with God to which the people said yes. So God says, if you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession out of all the peoples. Since the whole earth belongs to me, you will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. Now, God is going to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham and Sarah. So the people are here. They're a great people. But the whole purpose at the very beginning of Abraham and Sarah's walk is that through them a blessing would come to all the earth. So you have a whole kingdom of priests. Understand that generally in one group of people, there's just a small group that are priests. Or in one church, there's just one person that's a pastor or a priest. And they're a pastor or priest for the people. So if everyone's a pastor or priest... That doesn't quite make sense unless you're seeing through God's lens that this one people amidst all the peoples of the earth, this one people are the kingdom of priests for all the peoples of the earth. The priests represent God for everyone else. Israel has been chosen, not because they're better, but because God wants to work through them to bring the blessing and promise. So they're going to represent the goodness of God. So they need to stay faithful to the covenant. They need to orient their entire life, their heart, soul, mind, strength, their sense of security and identity, all to God, trusting that God's going to fulfill the promise of the redemption of everything and everyone. Just as God rescued them, God is going to rescue everything. And we stand here today in the year 2021 knowing God has started that redemption through Jesus Christ of all things. And we're in the midst of that. But if we go back here and we think about what it was like to stand at the bottom of that mountain three months after liberation and hear that you're going to be a kingdom of priests, you may start asking, or maybe you're asking here in 2021, what does that look like? What's that look like to be a kingdom of priests? What is it to be part of the redemption? I mean, how do I do that? Well, you can't just spell it out, all right? I know our Western minds think we can just read a manual and then we'll understand, but it's not quite how it works. Any more than reading the recipe of a a meal is going to give you the idea of what it is to experience eating the meal. You need the recipe. It's important to make it, but you're not experiencing the meal until you eat it, right? Until you try the different things and understand how foods pair and you understand what that does and suddenly it becomes something much deeper. It's the same way with faith. He can give you all these words in the Torah, the rule and the laws, but there's something much greater at work. 
And we see that with jazz musicians or athletes or doctors. When they commit themselves to their craft, their craft becomes bigger than just doing the motions. Playing the music and getting lost in the music is entirely different than just memorizing the notes and being able to play it. Or memorizing fundamentals and being able to do it. When you get lost in the sport and you hear the words used by athletes and by musicians that they transcend. There's something soul about it. And then you have doctors who they follow the rules, the books, they perfect their practice, but they start saving lives, start participating in people's health and well-being, and suddenly they realize that they're impacting entire families, that they're a part of something bigger, that it's much deeper than anything they ever prepared for in medical school. It's the same way with faith. Living as God's people is not us memorizing rules. It's not as us memorizing scripture. It's not about making sure that certain copies of certain rules are in certain places or courtrooms. That's not what it's about. Living as God's people is about orienting our lives, our entire lives, to the will and purpose of God, knowing that the promise of God that God's going to bring through us is already assured and is already happening through us as the people. It's not just rules. Our faith isn't just rules with all these words, but it's an altogether new perspective on everything. We may enter into the practice of faith following the rules and going through the motions, reading our scripture, saying the prayers, coming to worship, but we start to realize that by doing it, we become in touch with something deeper, a new perspective, a new understanding. We realize that we're practicing our faith. It's become a part of us. And by doing it, we're learning about it at the same time. We're always growing in new ways in our faith, like any of the other things and people and vocations I've mentioned. And it's all understood in the scripture itself. The word Torah, it means teaching, right? It means teaching. And actually, it's often used in, in a metaphor-type sense as a trellis. So you gardeners know what a trellis is. If you're not a gardener, a trellis is that thing, it's usually slatted or a, it's some sort of archway that you plant a vine and then the vine wraps itself around the trellis and you kind of guide the direction of the vine through the trellis. So you don't plant a vine unless you give it something to grow on. It can grow up the side of a wall, it can grow on a trellis. If you've, if you've ever been to a vineyard, they, they take poles and they put wire or rope hanging between the poles and the vine comes up and wraps itself around and it guides the growth. Torah is regarded as a trellis. It's words, it's rules, it's commandments, but it's more of a trellis upon which we are guided. And there's so many ways that image is used, and you can look at how Israel is called the vine. Jesus calls himself the true vine, the true Israel. We're all part of the branches, and God is the vine keeper, and the trellis is the Torah, or the rules, or the way of God, and we enter into this life of growth, and direction, and guidance, and sustenance, and pruning, and it's growth that lasts our whole life. We enter into it knowing we don't quite understand it fully yet, and that's okay. We're just committed to learning and growing as we go. So what is the direction we're supposed to orient our lives? What's that look like? What's it look like to be a kingdom of priests? Can we put some flesh and blood on this? I imagine that's what the people were feeling in Exodus 19, and so we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. 
Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourself, no form whatsoever, of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow down to them or worship them, because I, the Lord your God, am a passionate God. I punish children for their parents' sins, even to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But I am loyal and gracious to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Do not use the Lord your God's name as if it were of no significance. The Lord won't forgive anyone who uses his name this way. Remember the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Do not do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your animals or the immigrant who is living with you, because the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that is in them in six days, but rested on the seventh day. That is why the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your life will be long on the fertile land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here in this passage begins all these words in the Torah, all the commandments that come after, the trellis, the direction. What does it look like to be a kingdom of priests? It looks like the kind of life that abides in this way of relationship with God and with each other. Now, there are an enormous amount of commentary on just the 10, and there are either 611 or 613 total commandments in Scripture, but it's these 10 that are often used and understood and talked about. And there's one ancient Hebrew understanding that says if you understand the first, the first rule, the first law, the first commandment, all the rest will fall into line. So I want to spend some time talking about the first one and what they mean by this to help us understand how if we orient ourselves on God in the correct way, everything else will follow suit. So there's much happening in this first line. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You have no other gods before me. Okay, there's a lot happening here. I am the Lord, your God. I am. Okay, it's a name for God. We've come to understand saying, I am your God. Who am I? The Lord. The Lord is, I will be what I will be. So I am, I will be what I will be. I am your God. That's a lot. God will be what God will be. Whatever God needs to be for the people, God will be. There's comfort in that. And God will be our God. Now, the word your, I could be re, God could be referring to one person or a hundred people and say your. I'll be your God. God's referring to the whole assembly of Israel. All of them as if they are one entity, one family, one kingdom, one unit. And we're included in this. 
We're included in this now. So where God says, you shall or you shall not, it's not to each individual. It's to the whole community. You are the people. And people, this is how you live, because you're my people. I am the Lord, your God. I brought you out of slavery. It's a good reminder. There were all sorts of understandings of gods back then, all sorts of gods in every land of different kinds, and we see some of them pop up in in some of our Hebrew scripture time, and again, different gods in Egypt. And you can read all about them. There's plenty of literature on them even now. This God doesn't make the people bow down and submit themselves and, and exploit the people. Say, I'm all powerful, do what I say or else. Though this God, our God, brought the people out of slavery. Slavery, that word, evid, service, worship, brought the people out of a distorted relationship with power in this terrible, dehumanizing way of worshiping and serving. God has brought them out. And not just of that one time in Egypt then. God has brought them out of this way of understanding the world themselves and God altogether. Bringing them into joy and fullness of life, right worship and service, right relationship, that which honors humanity and dignity. And so we continue on, you have no other gods before me. You can understand this a couple of ways. Some of the more classic ways that we've grown up, or I've grown up with, maybe you have too, is, you know, there are, there's this land and that land and that land and they all have their gods and you don't have, you, you better not serve those gods. Don't devote yourselves to those gods. You have no other gods before me. Notice it's not disputing other gods. It's saying you have no, no other gods before me and it can sound like you have no other gods before me. But again, another ancient Hebrew way to understand it is quite enlightening and quite fulfilling. It's, you have no other gods to serve other than me. It's a freedom. It's a freedom. Now, you were in the house of slavery. I brought you out of there. Right? There were gods there. There was power and a pharaoh and, and all sorts of evil systems going on there. And you had to bow down and serve them. But guess what? In this new way, you, you have none of them. No, you have no other gods but me. And I'm not going to do that to you. It's not what I'm about. I brought you out of that. And you have no need to bow down to any other God but me. And I'll lead you into life. No more Pharaoh. No more Pharaohs ever. One reason that they say Pharaoh isn't given a name in Scripture is because God said no more Pharaohs ever. No more bowing down to this understanding of God's that exploits your humanity or that demeans your sacred worth. There's only one covenant. You have no other God but the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. It just sounds different to hear it that way, doesn't it? More in line with what we've come to know in Jesus Christ. When our lives are founded firmly in our identity as God's only people, and God is our only God, we discover that fullness and humanity and understanding dignity and being and sacred worth, it comes to fruition through this relationship and covenant. 
We, we grow into a new understanding of everything. Our own identity as a people, like Israel then, our own understanding of us and God and what our relationship is, what the purpose of serving God is, it's not to appease God, it's because God knows what's best for us and wants what's best for us. And if we trust God to lead us to that, then we'll experience the best and fullness of life. Not as we define it, because we, we get twisted in what we think we need and want. Trust God to take you there. Trust God. God will give you a whole new perspective, a whole new understanding of everything. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's the way of the light and life, the way of joy. When our lives are oriented to God alone and we understand our place as God's people, we find no need to make idols and try to try to somehow control God and determine where God is and isn't. We, we don't need to fear God like the people feared Pharaoh. The word fear, as we often use it in Scripture, means to revere, to respect. Yes, and we need to understand and respect and revere God, but we never have to worry that God is going to just suddenly turn on us and exploit us and hurt us. When we are oriented to God alone as God's only people, we don't need to use God's name for our own agendas. We don't need to use God's name lightly as if it has no significance because God is our agenda. God is our significance. We, when we're God's people, our worth isn't determined by our production as slaves. We can trust that we can live an entire day simply knowing that being human is being enough. Being you is enough. When we're the people of only God, the God of promise, we are people that suddenly have the capacity and the ability to regard human life for what it is, sacred, never worth killing. We don't need to steal. We don't need to mistreat our neighbor and their relationships or mistreat their stuff or mistreat their trust by lying. That's why we don't, we don't our life doesn't, isn't depending upon what we can achieve for ourselves, even if we have to take advantage of our... No, our life's determined by God. We have no other gods but God. Status, power, security, and finance, that, no, just God. We've been rescued from all of that. If we're committed to worshiping and serving properly our one God... We're going to start to learn what it is to be human beings in the first place. What it is to experience life in its fullness. Ways that we have not comprehended yet. Ways that we will grow into as we are guided along the trellis of faith through scripture, through prayer, through our time and following the Holy Spirit and cooperating with the way that the Spirit is always leading us onward and speaking to us and guiding us. God continues to rescue us from our old ways of thinking. And in our repentance and reorientation, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, who was the living, breathing law of God as love, mercy, and compassion. And maybe, maybe you're not sure what to do with this because the God that you were presented and taught or that you constructed for yourself looks more like Pharaoh, looks more like a God who's just waiting for you to mess up who treats you like you're an enemy, who treats you like your worth is only by what you produce. God has rescued 
us from that way of thinking. We have no other gods, but the God who calls us precious, who calls us a kingdom of priests, a God who is faithful to us, a God who has compassion and mercy, who is patient and forgiving. God rescues us from every other way of life and leads us away from death and oppression into fullness of life, of an eternal quality here and now, makes us a holy nation for the ongoing blessing and promise to the world around us. All these words of the Ten Commandments and the 600 plus other commandments after them, they serve one purpose, to help us grow. We commit to God as our only God, trusting in God, and we commit to learn and grow along the trellis that is our scripture, that is our faith and tradition, that is the Spirit's leading, that God will lead us where we need to go. We simply only need to trust. And we look to Jesus as our model. And we operate in the church to hold each other accountable and to encourage each other and to build each other up and to cheer each other on and to pick each other up when we fall down. Friends, trust. Trust in the leading of the Holy Spirit who continues to nurture the message that we belong to only God. We are God's people. Orient your whole life to that truth and let every moment and decision and investment you make all be a testament to your one truth in God alone. And life will come together. We will be led in this area of growth. We will become the kingdom of priests we seek to be. We will gain a whole new understanding of ourselves, God, and the world around us, and you will be blessed. Rend your hearts, friends. Claim the promise in God. And welcome to your full humanity as you grow into it. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us. And it is our hope that through the Holy Spirit, you have felt the touch of God upon your life. If you would like to know more about our church and its ministries, please visit our website at sellersburgumc.com.